We are starting, though, talking about the weather. We've already had the term atmospheric river being used in the last few days. But what about the future and what things look like in some parts of the province where we have seen flooding in the past and we expect there will be more flooding in the future? Well, joining us to talk more about this is Paula Simons. And Paula Simons, thank you so much for taking the time and for joining us to talk about this. Well, thank you very much for calling. Um, you're with the the Standing Senate Committee on Agriculture and Forestry, and this is um, to do with this new Senate report. It's calling for action from the federal government. What kind of action is it looking for? Well, our report is called Treading Water, and it's an analysis of the 2021 BC floods, the ones that affected atmosphere in particular and the Fraser Valley so so terribly. Uh, and it's a, it was sort of, I don't want to call it a quick and dirty study because we don't do that in the Senate. But for the Senate, it was a very quick study because we wanted to have it out uh, in time for the one-year anniversary. And we have three main recommendations. They're, they're pretty simple and straightforward. One is that the federal government should, uh, with its deep pockets, take a important role in funding and assessing what needs to be done to replace and repair dikes. Uh, sort of the flood mitigation infrastructure, which is a big fancy word for saying the dikes and the dams and the and the gates and the things that, you know, are supposed to keep the water back. Because we heard from witnesses who said that, you know, the government has known for some time that these dikes are not in good repair and that many of them are in danger of failing without much provocation. The second recommendation is that the government should make it easier and uh, faster for people who are affected by major catastrophic weather events to file for compensation from agriculture and agri-foods Canada. We heard from a lot of farmers in the Fraser Valley who said that they were happy that there was government support, but that it took a long time to get to them and really added to their stress while they waited. And then the third recommendation is that the federal government should again take the lead in coordinating response to the management of the Nooksack River with the governments of Washington State and uh, the United States. Because rivers don't respect borders. They don't care where human beings draw the line. And the river runs from the United States into Canada. And so it's great for local mayors to be worrying about this. It's even good for the Washington state and the D.C. government to be worried about it. But because this is a transporter issue, we think there's a leadership role for the federal government in those negotiations. Uh, let's uh, look a little closer at those recommendations then, and we'll start uh, with working with government officials in Washington state, because like you say, it's on both sides of the border and the river uh, has, uh, as we know, a bit of a mind of its own. Uh, so how do you go about doing that, though? Because we and we saw that as well. There are consequences in the Fraser Valley on this side of the border, and they are direct qu- consequences of what action or, or, or the inaction of our counterparts in Washington. Well, this is what is so tricky, um, you know, and it's easy to say, oh, this should be done. But this is, this is something that requires diplomacy, which is not my personal long suit. So this is something where the federal government, I think, really, uh, uh, with, you know, in its international relations and its diplomatic relations, has to take a lead role. And I think it's really encouraging that the governments of B.C. and Washington state have taken some major steps forward on this. But when you're dealing with international waterways, you can't get too hung up on jurisdictional niceties if you want to do something to solve this problem in a timely fashion. We need to make sure that governments on both sides of the border understand that it's in their mutual best interest to make sure that we are uh, managing the flood of the Nooksack uh, as best we can on both ends.
And what role do you see or did this report look at as far as municipalities? Because these are issues that are going to be extremely costly, and we've had some cost estimates of doing some of this work in the past. Not something that municipalities could just pick up and and pick up the tab for that. So what role do you see them playing? Well, this is a huge problem that was flagged for us by many of our witnesses who were themselves mayors of, of, you know, municipal districts that were affected by this, because it seems that as with so many, many things over the last few years, more and more responsibility has been downloaded onto municipalities who, of course, have the fewest resources. Now, municipalities are on the front lines of response to climate change and climate disaster. So there's a really important role for the municipalities in knowing what their people need on the ground, because they are always going to be the first responders. But it is, you know, irrational and unjust to suspect to expect municipalities who have the fewest resources and the fewest taxing powers to carry the lion's share of the burden for this. And that is why we think it's, you know, we are asking the federal government to step up because the costs to repair this flood mitigation infrastructure are, you know, could run into the billions of dollars. And there's no way that each individual municipality should be responsible for, for that kind of charge, not just because it's really expensive, but because if you're worrying about your one town or city, you don't have the big picture. And that's why we need, I think, uh, different orders of government to step back and coordinate. So municipalities have a hugely important role, and they need to be freed up to do the things that they do best, but they also need to have the resources uh, and the guidance to make sure that everybody's you know, pulling oars in the same direction. Right. And you mentioned as well that there was a time issue here, obviously wanting this report out for the one year since we saw that catastrophic flooding and that there's not, uh, we don't want red tape to get in the way of, of implementing these recommendations. How realistic is that? Do you think that they can be done quickly? Well, I don't think that many of, you know, many of these things can't be done quickly, but the best time to start is now. And I think it's, you know, it's ironic because when we were planning the release date for the report, you know, we were, you know, we were originally people in Ottawa thought we should release it two weeks ago. And I had to remind them that then that would coincide with municipal elections. And we didn't want this to be uh, either overshadowed or pulled into the municipal election debate. So, you know, we delayed the release by a couple of weeks. And as a result, the report came out just as more uh, atmospheric rivers are, are hitting British Columbia So in some ways, and I say this as a former journalist, our timing couldn't have been more apt because I think the report is getting more attention because everybody in B.C. and the the lower mainland in particular right now is very focused on what's happening in the sky. But I think that, you know, in terms of the thing that would be the fastest to do, it's absolutely to streamline the application system for aid and assistance so that we just have the fewest friction points so that people don't have to, you know, print out papers or fax them or mail them, that there's somebody at the other end of the phone when they call. And of course, the floods of 2021 coincided with some you know, dire times for the public service who were overwhelmed with pandemic response. But we have to take the lessons we've learned from the pandemic and dare I say from the convoy experience and figure out how to get people answers faster. Because even if you can't give them their money right away, if they know for certain the money is coming, I think that's you know, soothing to the nerves. It's that time when you're waiting in limbo, not knowing if that help is going to be there that is the most stressful. Right. Although I would imagine, too, even uh, being told the, that the check is in the mail, uh, you still want to know when that check's going to be arriving. Yeah. 
Exactly. And we shouldn't, you know, at the very least, we shouldn't. I don't know if checks still go in the mail, (laughs) but if they are going in the mail, we should stop that. Yeah, that's a very good point as well. Uh, One other point you made too, and this is the the diking system, and certainly uh, there was a lot of talk specifically of the pump station, which had that actually gone, we would have been having a a very different conversation as far as the damage caused and and what was happening in the Fraser Valley. Is there? Did the report look at or or try and figure out why it was that we've let the diking system with nearly 90% of the diking system not up to standard, how it is we've let this happen? Well, I mean, we spoke to hydraulic engineers. We spoke to um, authorities, uh, Henry Braun from from Abbotsford. We spoke to, you know, a number of people about, you know, why they thought, but we didn't get any very clear answer. I'm afraid the answer is probably human nature and inertia because, you know, it, it, it's the 2015 study that found that 87% of dikes in the lower mainland were in less than fair condition. I mean, you know, if my doctor told me I was in less than fair condition, I'd be worried. Um, And 71% of the dikes are expected to fail simply, you know, if the water gets up to the top of them. Well, then they're not very useful. And I, you know, I can't speak for why this has taken so long. My intuition, having covered municipal politics for the Edmonton Journal for a long time, is that sometimes provinces download stuff to municipalities, and then it's like that Spider-Man meme where everybody is pointing at everybody else. Mm-hmm. Um, we, ha- we have to stop that. We have to, we have to have a cohesive, coherent plan for dealing with this in British Columbia. And while the federal government is at it, they need to be you know, taking warning from what happened in B.C. and looking to where other points, you know, points of vulnerability might be across the country. Because... You know, it is long past time for us to be debating whether climate change is real. I mean, this is here and upon us. And it's a, you know, it's an absolutely essential thing that we reduce carbon emissions. But in the meantime, we have already changed the climate radically enough that we need to stop putting our head in the sand and recognize that these changes are happening now and we need to have emergency response prepared for them. All right. Um, Senator, just before I let you go, I'm not sure if you're able to answer this or talk about this, but I am curious since I have you on the line now. Some of your fellow senators have been raising questions about the spending of the Canadian delegation in London for the Queen's funeral and asking specifically about who it was that stayed in the room that was $6,000 a night. Do you think that was appropriate use of money or that trip, those expenses are justified? You know, the numbers are eye-watering. Um, but I, you know, I, I'm thinking of two things. One is, can you imagine how hard it was to even get hotel rooms in London that week for the Queen's funeral? I mean, London hotel rooms are eye-wateringly expensive at the best of times. I can only imagine how they, you know, consider it surge pricing. And I, you know, I heard the Conservatives raising concerns too that the rooms had been booked days in advance of when we actually needed them. And of course, the problem I'm assuming would have been that it took a few days before they nailed down when the funeral was going to take place. And I imagine that the people in charge of the bookings, you know, had to had to book the rooms in advance because you wouldn't want to be caught short. I, you know, I I think it's fair to raise the questions. I also think it's fair to consider, you know, what we're actually talking about here, a relative, you know, to to the size of the Canadian budget. But, you know, the Conservatives have also made comparisons to how much less the American delegation spent. Well, she wasn't the Queen of the United States. She was the Queen of Canada. We sent uh, 
you know, a robust delegation. You know, we could sit and argue, but did we, you know, did we need to send this person? Did we need to send that person? But at the end of the day, this was going to cost us, and it was going to cost us a fair bit no matter what to provide, you know, for, for rooms that were, you know, appropriate for the governor general and the prime minister. You know, they're not going to stay, you know, when I was last in London, I stayed at a, at a very small room in a very small hotel because um, I was on my own dime. You know, I, I think sometimes we do ourselves a disservice, nickel and diming stuff that is at the end of the day, not, not that important. It's just $6,000 feels real to us because we've all booked a hotel room. And we all know that if I was, you know, if I, if I were booking a hotel room and they told me it was $6,000, I would laugh dryly and hang up the phone. Right. But I wasn't the person in charge of booking for an entire large delegation who needed rooms at very short notice at a time when London was overwhelmed with hotel reservations. So, All right. I, I guess the question is just if the prime minister stayed there and again, it's justifiable, why not just tell the public that that's who stayed in the room? I don't know. I mean, I'm not a liberal senator. I'm an independent senator. I'm not conservative and I'm not liberal. I mean, it does seem to me that, you know, if I were advising them, I would tell them to say there may be some security concern. I mean, that's that's the other thing. You know, I mean, I can't I can't begin to comprehend what the security concerns would have been with every world leader uh, of import in London that day. So, you know, but I, I grant you that it, it doesn't entirely pass the sniff test. All right. Uh, Senator Paula Simons, thank you so much for your time today. Appreciate you coming on the show. All right. Take care. Well, there was a lot of anticipation I think, when it comes to the Michelin stars for restaurants in Vancouver. It's the first time this has happened. The stars have been announced and there are different levels, different tiers, whether you get one star, more stars. Some in Vancouver now have one star. They are based on things like the quality products in the restaurant, the flavors, cooking techniques, personality of the chef, consistency, and the list goes on and on. Well, we wanted to talk a bit more about this, so who better to reach out to than Richard Wolak, the editor and publisher of VancouverFoodster.com, also the host of the Van Foodster podcast. Richard, great to have you on the show today. Thank you, Joe, for having me. What were your, what are your thoughts when we look well, at the Michelin stars and the restaurants? First of all, it was very exciting being at the award ceremony last night. It's the first time for Vancouver, so everyone in Vancouver is very excited about this. But, uh, yeah, it's great to see because we have never had a stars in Vancouver before. A rest, Toronto recently got it, and then now it's Vancouver. So I think it's really important for the dining scene that they've recognized these eight restaurants. It's eight restaurants got one star. Um, no restaurants got two stars. So I think that's something to set the stage for a future that, of course, people want that. But I think Toronto had a couple, and um, in other cities around the world, they have them as, as well. So I think it's just really, really good that uh, Vancouver got this for at least for at least eight first stars. That's really good. And can you talk a little bit about the restaurants on that list? Any that stick out to you, maybe that you've been to, or uh, the, the reasons why they were given those stars? Cool. 
What was really interesting to me was actually three restaurants on the list that I've not been to. And I thought I had been to most restaurants around Vancouver. I thought, wow, look at these restaurants. Three of them I have not been to. And I had not been to Barbara. And I heard that they, they had opened up during the pandemic. You know, it's a very small restaurant in Chinatown. I think it seats eight people. And they got it. And then I tried to, uh, through a friend to make a reservation immediately. They're fully booked through December already. Hmm. So, I mean, you can just see that that has a patient there. People really want it. Kisitanto one, you know, uh, published on Maine one. Uh, these are really good restaurants. They've been, you know, ex- excelling at what they do for years now. I mean, I guess the publish has been around, I guess, three, four, five years now. Um, so it's great to see that, you know, it's, the, you know, these chefs, especially Gus that's published, I mean, He's been really driving the local food scene for since he started. So you can see that they've recognized that, and, they, and they've gone through that. Uh, St. Lawrence won a star. Uh, Masayoshi on uh, on Fraser Street is a small uh, Japanese uh, sushi restaurant. Uh, one one Chinese restaurant is the Guangzhou at 12th and Canby. They won a star. Um, and then uh, there's a, a few other restaurants in there, but it's just great to see the you know the, the the coverage, I guess, of these restaurants. And I'm sure there are you know for some some restaurants, I'm sure we're hoping that they were going to get a star and didn't get a star, and I'm sure that can be heartbreaking. Uh, but I think it's just something to look forward to the for the future. And when we look at how they were awarded, and I talked a bit about the criteria, but how does it work as far as are there secret Michelin agents that are going around and eating at these restaurants and then compiling the list? Yes, and they explained that to us last night, that they have inspectors and they come from other parts of the world and they they were here, and I guess they've been here for a while uh, working on the Vancouver scene. It's it's team-driven, so... They'll send one one inspector into one restaurant. They'll send another inspector into a different restaurant. But then they have a team, and then somebody else will go to the same restaurant, and then they compare notes. And that's how they decide, I mean, which restaurants are going to sort of be on that top list. So they put 40 restaurants um, were mentioned as being part of the Michelin Guide for Vancouver. So what that means is if you're coming from Asia, you're coming from Europe, you're coming from the U.S., and you're going to follow the Michelin Guide because people only want to eat at Michelin restaurants, those 40 restaurants are now in that guide, and it, it's already live. It's digital. It's on. It's online. It was online last night, so people can look through that. And that's, So I think it's going to be a boon for their business, especially being part of a guide like this. <laughs> well, you mentioned something as well, that even trying, so trying to book at, a re, at one of the restaurants that was just announced, like you were saying, it was booked through December. Do you think that will happen to the others as well? And I know some of the places published, I mean, it was difficult to get in at the best of times so to make a reservation. Is this going to make it even more difficult to get in? And, and will it make them more expensive? Well, that's the thing. So I hope not, because, you know, you look at other cities, you look at like New York and the Michelin star restaurants are very expensive there. They're three hundred, four hundred dollars, uh, you know, just to go in and per person. So I really hope that doesn't happen to Vancouver, because that would be a shame for locals, especially. I mean, tourists, they're coming here. That's a different story. But for locals, you got to people need value. You can't. It's hard to dine at, at uh, restaurants that are getting more and more expensive. So I hope, I hope they're able to keep their prices the way they are. But I assume it will be a little difficult getting reservations for the immediate future. Uh, maybe, you know, you can, people can try because always people cancel all the time. So just look for cancellations and try to get in. <laughs> That's uh, the best you can do. Uh, there was also, uh, along with the list of the restaurants that got these stars, there, were, there was also the list of recommended restaurants and restaurants that were noticed. Does that help, do you think, or do people look at that when, and, and it's the prestige of being at least or even recognized by the Michelin Guide? Well, I think, I think the people look at it because, you know, like I know Vidge's, uh, they're recommended. 
Um, they did not receive it. Sorry, but they recommended it. And the, the restaurant was thrilled just to be recommended. They were so happy last night. So I think there were, you know, restaurants like that they are. And, of course, you know, tourism is, is key for us, especially now after post-pandemic or as the pandemic is ending. Um, tourism is key. So people coming from Europe, people come from Asia, people from the United States, they see that, they follow the guide. I think they're going to be looking at those restaurants. That's where they're going to want to book first. And what is it, do you think, that's kind of stood the test of time in that people, even if you've not been, I suppose, to a Michelin star restaurant, people have certainly heard of this and it has managed to kind of keep that that prestige and that reputation. Yeah, and Michelin, they've been around for 120 years. So 120 years of a guide is pretty substantial. And, you know, when you travel in Europe and you everybody knows, like, I'm going to go to a Michelin star restaurant. I make a reservation three months in advance. So that's the kind of thing. So, I mean, it's just so important now for us. And I think it will just help the dining scene, culinary scene here expand. And people can look at, you know, there's certain things you got to look at when you really want to get onto that level. And so you just, you just got to keep plugging away, I think, like that. There's so many things involved. And I think the, the Bib Gourmand also, that category was also interesting. Uh, they awarded 12 restaurants that, and that is uh, value meal. So you get um, two courses, you get dessert and a drink. It's for under $60. Hmm. Great. And they named a lot of restaurants on that list. And I was like, wow, these restaurants are still under 60 This is amazing. But this is great to see. Well, and that's the list. Vidges was on that, that list, wasn't it? Uh, yeah, Vidges was also on that list, and Oka Pacifico was on that list. Um, There were several, so it was great to see. I mean, just it's exciting for Vancouver. I just hope that the $60 price doesn't become $70 by next year. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, I think anybody uh, going to those restaurants hopes that for sure. Uh, What happens then as far as keeping the Michelin star? I would imagine you have to keep up to a certain standard, and not that a restaurant would not want to, but, you know, if, if... owners change or if chefs leave and new chefs come in is there a, a protocol as far as how you keep the star yeah that's interesting they didn't talk about that last night i, I kind of wondered that because you know sometimes a restaurant is sold and then sometimes when restaurants are sold and they tend to go downhill and you wouldn't want that to happen for when you have a michelin star and then you're right chefs do leave so i don't actually know what happens in that respect they didn't talk about it i suppose we will find out over the next few years and they'll be back to do this again next year and they said that they are doing um, some awards will be given out during the year, during service, during the year. They will announce some other special awards. Interesting. Uh, and yeah. Richard, if you don't have uh, this one off the top of your head, that's fine. But I'm curious because you know the restaurant scene so well. Are there any restaurants that came to your mind or that you thought of that maybe should have been recognized and weren't? Of course. <laughs> there, are, there are always those. But I mean, what do you know, right? Like, this is my, you know, my, me being on the dining scene here, and this is what I think, but I guess people, the, the inspectors from Michelin are looking for something different. They look for food, they look for, they, they said that the local ingredients was key here for the Vancouver factor was that many of these top restaurants were using local um, fresh ingredients and that was key for them. And that's what they were looking for here. So they called it a global diverse uh, scene. So that was interesting. Maybe may different for them in other cities. I suppose Toronto has probably looked at a little bit different than Vancouver. Interesting. All right. Well, I know there's a a lot of buzz and uh, people uh, finding out about restaurants they didn't know about or happy that uh, one of their favorites has made one of those lists. Richard, thank you so much for joining us uh, for talking more about this. Thank you for having me. 
Well, Canada's top court says parts of the National Sex Offender Registry are unconstitutional. This was a ruling made this morning. It was announced by the Supreme Court of Canada saying mandatory registration of all sex offenders with more than one conviction goes too far. It has also given Parliament one year to rewrite its law on mandatory registration. Well, to talk more about this, we are joined by Sarah Lehman, a lawyer and the founder of the Sarah Lehman Law Group. Thank you so much for being with us. Thanks again for having me. At the surface, when you just look at that part of the story, it seems a bit odd. But what do we know about why the Supreme Court of Canada has ruled that there are parts of this registry that are unconstitutional? Sure. Yeah, it does make for quite a shocking headline, I think, at first read, because it sounds as though the court is going easy on people who have a history of uh, committing sexual offenses. That's not the case at all. So what's happened here is that the court has struck down this mandatory provision where people must be added to the registry for life if they have more than one conviction of a sexual nature. And keep in mind that that can occur even in the course of, say, just one allegation. Um, But they've struck it down and they've said that this is something that is uh, grossly disproportionate and not rationally connected to the objective of a legislative scheme, which is, of course, to protect communities and also to aid in the investigation of sexually related offenses. Right. And and you're right, because the the headline did make it seem like uh, that you were going against what seemed like common sense. But uh, this also, uh, because it it comes with a conviction or or it uh, has concerns about the conviction of somebody who pleaded guilty back in 2015 uh, to two uh, sex assaults uh, that took place in 2011. Uh, Can you talk at all about kind of that case and how that case has, has led us to where this is today? Sure. So that case dealt with a young man who had gone to a party and uh, had um, committed a sexual offense against two people who were at the party. And I'm not completely familiar with all of the facts of that case, of course. But my understanding is that it was quite low level, like perhaps some groping had happened at the party. Um, and and that was about it. Uh, now, not to minimize that conduct, of course, it is very, very serious. And this young man pled guilty. He did serve Um, an in-custody sentence of six months. But the issue here was that he was also added to the sex offender registry for a period of life. Um, This would require him to do all kinds of things uh, for the rest of his life, such as um, make sure that he maintains his address and updates um, all of his information on the sex offender registry every year. Uh, And he was ordered to do this um, in spite of the fact that he had received a very positive pre-sentence report indicating that he was at very, very low level in terms of possibility of reoffending, And so the Supreme Court of Canada has held that he shouldn't be on the sex offender registry, that it is not required in order to protect our communities or make sure that these types of offenses are properly prosecuted. Right. But because the way the rules are right now, then that he would have automatically, I guess there's no appeal process or he would have automatically because of the nature of what he uh, entered the guilty plea to, he would have automatically been on that list. That's right. So it was mandatory. There's no discretion for the judge. And it was something that happened just as a function of those two pleas being entered. And so that's the problem that the the top court is having with this, is that it is something that's left outside of the discretion of a judge who's presiding. And there are circumstances of uh, an offender that would 
uh, mitigate their chances of perhaps reoffending and not make it appropriate for them to end up on a registry like this for the rest of their lives. Does it bring into question as well the the fact that we use the term sexual assault as kind of an umbrella phrase and it can be anything from, and again, not to say, uh, not to, to downplay anything, but to say that in this case, so a, a, a grope at a party is very different from a rape and that we don't use that term anymore, but because it all falls under sexual assault, everything is treated the same? That's right. Yeah. So that was another change that happened in the 1980s, I believe, with respect to the prosecution of these types of offenses. And the reason for it or the rationale and thinking was that all types of sexual violence are unacceptable and therefore we should treat them all the same. Um, Of course, that's not the case when it comes to sentencing, broadly speaking, in the court, but it was the case when it comes to the sex offender registry because of this mandatory requirement where there's more than one um, offence that uh, is on a person's record. And so I think that lack of discretion is really uh, the problem that uh, the Supreme Court had uh, with respect to this provision. So do you think with the, the court then telling Parliament, you need to rewrite this law, you need to, to change this, and you've got a year to do that, would that mean then that it could be changed in that that discretion would be given to judges and judges could then say as part of the sentence, you must be on the uh, sex offender registry? Or would it be, it would change it so it's automatically perhaps uh, linked to some sexual offences but not others? Yeah, I mean, Parliament can do what they wish in their infinite wisdom, of course, in terms of crafting that legislation, but they will be wise to do it, keeping in mind the comments of the court here. And I think perhaps one of the most prudent approaches they could use would be the one that you mentioned first, which was um, that we should grant discretion to judges in order to consider the circumstances of the offence, the circumstances of the offender, and perhaps other important relevant information with respect to their propensity to reoffend when deciding whether or not they should be added to a sex offender registry and for what term. And in fact, that was the way that the law did function prior to 2011 when Parliament changed it to create this mandatory registration for people with more than one offense. And it doesn't sound like that that it was unanimous either, or at least some parts of this, uh, looking at the, the lifetime listing that once you're on that list, uh, you're on it for life, that there was no way to to appeal that or there was no way to show or if if it was changed and that you, you were a low risk to reoffend, there was no way to kind of deal with that. So it doesn't seem like everybody's in agreement as to how this should or if this is working the way it's supposed to. Yeah, and I mean, the court was split in the decision. It was 5-4, and I think that the main reason why some of the dissenting justices decided the way they did was that they were worried that perhaps, you know, the courts wouldn't always get it right. Um, of course, that's always a concern, I suppose, um, but we have to trust that our justice system is going to get it right and that it's going to work properly. And when it doesn't, of course, there are avenues to appeal, which is exactly what happened here. Uh, so do you think, will it take the full year? I guess it's kind of impossible to know. But uh, generally speaking, when, when we see the Supreme Court t- tell Parliament, this isn't right, you've got a year to fix it. D- do we tend to see changes uh, quickly or, or we'll be talking about this maybe in a year when this is announced? 
Yeah, I expect that this will be something that's uh, at the top of their agenda, um, that they'll want to get this um, taken care of as soon as possible. And of course, Parliament also has the option to do nothing, right? Um, They may decide that they're not going to write a new law for this and just simply allow the court to strike down those provisions and let the criminal code exist as it does. Um, So I guess we'll just see which approach they take, but it will be interesting to see for sure. All right. Uh, Interesting, uh, for sure. Thank you so much, Sarah, uh, for breaking this down for us. Uh, Appreciate your time today. And thank you for having me. Well, we now know David Eby will be sworn in as British Columbia's new premier. That is going to happen on November 18th. The information was put out that from the office of the premier saying the ceremony making David Eby, BC's 37th premier, is going to take place at Government House and we will have further details coming within the next few days. So some are asking why is it taking so long for this swearing in ceremony? Joining us to talk about that is Adam Olson, BC Green MLA for Saanich North and the Islands, also House Leader for the BC Green Caucus. Adam, thanks so much for being with us. Thanks a lot for having me. Uh, what are your concerns about the timing and uh, what, we're, what we now know about uh, the swearing-in and that it's not happening until November 18th? Uh, well, I think the, uh, the challenge is that we are in a fall session right now and um, there has been, you know, I think a, a lot of uh, questions asked of government and uh, it's been really, really challenging as we've been uh, trying to manage, uh, as the government has been trying to manage this transition. Um, Mr. Eby suggested earlier this summer that uh, it, was a, it was a challenge having a challenger in, that, in the leadership uh, race that they had and uh, he wanted to get down to business. And now I think what we're, what we're faced with is this transition period being dragged out uh, over a matter of a month. And we've seen, you know, in, in take uh, the UK Parliament, for example, uh, Rishi Sunak uh, gets, uh, gets elected leader of his party and um, sworn in the next day and standing up and answering questions in question period the, the day after that. So we, we see examples of where this uh, process could be undertaken in a, in a much quicker, at a much quicker pace. Uh, recognizing that Mr. Eby's been a high-ranking member of this government over the last five years, uh, really shouldn't be taking this long. And have you been able to get any clear answers from those involved as to why there is this delay and why it's not happening until the 18th? Um, Well, I mean, I think uh, the only response that I've had was that this is how things happen in British Columbia. And uh, I think to that, my response was that this is how this particular process is happening and it doesn't mean that it needs to happen uh, at the pace that it's happening nor uh, do we should we require uh, an amendment to the parliamentary calendar which has been you know made available to the public uh, for an entire year now um, we shouldn't be uh, debating a motion uh, at the end of next week to to shorten the legislative session and uh, really what it amounts to is that uh, once uh, Mr. Eby becomes the premier, uh, the opposition parties are really going to have only four days uh, worth of questions to uh, of time to ask him before uh, the assembly shutters for uh, in, until the spring of next year. So, you know, um, Mr. Eby has has made uh, lots of uh, very bold claims about how things are going to change under his leadership, and I think it is the role and the responsibility of the. Um, opposition, the official opposition and uh, our party, the third party, to 
to have that opportunity to be able to ask what that looks like. Um, and, and uh, you know, I, I think that by sh- shutting the legislature down for um, one of those uh, last remaining few weeks, uh, it limits the opportunity for us, for, for him to be held accountable and for us to do our job. And you made mention of how quickly things turned over uh, in the UK. I think even when people were a little bit shocked when Liz Truss resigned after a very short time in that position. Also, as we saw things shift shift roles in Alberta. So certainly there are examples out there of, of swearing in and a new leader taking over and doing it a lot faster than it's happening here. Yeah, I mean, I think what's important to acknowledge is that this is not like the changing of, you know, the, the that happened in 2017, for example, with the B.C. Liberal government that had been in place for 16 years and, and then a new B.C. NDP government with briefing binders, et cetera. I mean, what we're talking about here are people uh, largely, other than I think Mr. Eby's chief of staff, who's not been in the buildings, uh, the, the vast majority of the senior leadership team, uh, have been around the buildings uh, for some time now, and especially, uh, uh, especially um, the fact that the premier designate was the former attorney general uh, for five years, a uh, high-ranking member of cabinet, definitely been a part of the decision making over the past uh, five years. It just really doesn't make sense that that it needs to drag on for the better part or for a month, uh, really. What, what British Columbians need is a government that's functioning well with a leader. We now have basically two premiers for a month. We've got a, an outgoing premier that, um, you know, is, is uh, there's a, a celebration of the work that, uh, that Premier Horgan has done over the last five years uh, next week. Uh, we've got a premier designate. They were both at, at um, the government house yesterday for a photo op uh, with the lieutenant governor. There's no reason why uh, uh, an expedited process couldn't be underway. Um, I, I, you know, I, I can't imagine that much of what's been happening is, is uh, foreign to foreign to the premier designate. So, you know, I think we've seen these examples from around uh, uh, one here in Canada, one in the UK. Certainly, I think we want more stability than what they've had uh, in, in the UK over the last number of months. But uh, definitely, we see. Um, you know the new the new prime minister of the UK standing up and being held accountable for the decisions that uh, that he made in those earliest hours, and as well for the for the the government that he leads. And we expect the exact same from uh, from Mr. Eby. Right, and like you said, this it's not a changing of government, and it's not somebody who's new to this. It's not as though the no. new premier is starting from scratch. Not at all. I mean, uh, in, in, for the most part, in fact. What, uh, what uh, he suggested during the campaign, I mean, we had basically one uh, substantive piece of policy laid out during the, the BC NDP leadership campaign, <laughs> fiasco, whatever you want to call it. I mean, the, the reality of it is, is that uh, there was very little new put on the table for, for what British Columbians could expect. In fact, I think uh, one of the, the, the most uh, often quoted um, uh, things from the premier designate from Mr. Eby is that uh, we're largely going to see the same agenda that, uh, that, that premier Horgan has delivered. So, you know, this is really a con continuation of the current government rather than a, a new government, a change of government. So um, it really is uh, unnecessary that we're facing uh, a situation where premier Horgan is clearly on his way out uh, that the opportunity for him to make decisions 
I think uh, it's definitely substantive decisions are probably behind them, and the opportunity for the Premier-designate to be making substantive decisions are yet to come. And so we've really been experiencing this uh, uh, both in our constituency offices as MLAs and, and as well uh, uh, as uh, legislators in the in the Legislative Assembly. We've been experiencing this transition now for the last number of months, and it's been very frustrating. Uh, it's, it's difficult to get answers. Um, it's, it's unclear, um, you know, who's taking responsibility and, and actually steering the ship right now. And so, you know, I, I think some British Columbians might look at this and say, oh, this is just an opposition party complaining uh, about the fact that they don't get to stand up and question period and rant and rave. That, that's really not what this is about. This is about uh, actually British Columbians having a government that is fully functioning. And what we've seen throughout the last number of months is a government that is only uh, partially functioning. Um, we've been waiting for this process to, to get completed. I think Mr. Eby was really eager to get it over with um, w- without, any, uh, without any leadership contest at all. Uh, and now, now that he is the leader, we've got this delay that seems to be drawn out. And, and unfortunately, it really appears mostly drawn out in order to to not have to, uh, to answer many questions you know, with only a week to go uh, once he's sworn in. So we really need a government that's fully functioning, and that's, and that's not the case right now. All right. Well, Adam Olson, we'll leave it there for today, but thanks so much for joining us. Yeah, thank you for inviting me, and uh, have a wonderful afternoon. Thanks for being with us on this Friday afternoon. Well, we started the show, we were actually talking to a senator about something completely different, talking about flooding in British Columbia and a new Senate report. But I also asked Independent Senator Paula Simons her thoughts on the questions now being asked about the cost of the trip for Canadian dignitaries and VIPs to attend the Queen's funeral, and specifically the questions being asked about the $6,000 per night hotel room. Can you imagine how hard it was to even get hotel rooms in London that week for the Queen's funeral? I mean, London hotel rooms are eye-wateringly expensive at the best of times. I can only imagine how they, you know, consider it surge pricing. She also said that if she had ever been quoted that price, she would not have stayed in a hotel room that cost that much, but also said it doesn't really pass the sniff test. Well, we wanted to talk a little bit more about this. So joining us now is Tristan Hopper, columnist and reporter at the National Post. Tristan, hello and happy Friday to you. Yes. A happy Friday to all. <laughs> so you have written about this in the first reading column. And and I know Brian Lilly has been writing about this. He spoke on the Jazz Joe Hall show earlier this week. Some are saying, oh, you're just writing about this because you want to write about something or talk about something other than Doug Ford this week. But people are asking questions. So what do we know at this point about the costs that it that really added up for the Canadian team that went to London. Oh, yeah. Uh, so Brian Lilly's done all the actual reporting on this. Uh, but uh, essentially, whenever there's some big expensive thing, uh, yeah, it is our job as reporters to file. It's, it's pretty easy to just file an access to information request on expenses. And we do a whole bunch of these. And, you know, in prior governments, I won't name which, um, usually you just get kind of a bunch of boring forms back. And it's like, oh, that seems about the price that would be. And there's no story here. But uh, yeah, there is a 
we, maybe we've been doing it a bit more under the Trudeau government because we keep seeing expense accounts that are just they don't even attempt to make sense. Um, so yeah, Paul Simon. Yeah, it's London is expensive uh, for hotel rooms, and they would been they would have been particularly expensive with all of the world's VIPs staying there. Um, but that would maybe account for like sixty thousand dollars in hotel hotel costs. But we're talking like almost well, we're three hundred the high three hundreds. Um, so we're like you know a third of a million dollars. Um, so the price of a house uh, essentially for what worked out to be. Um, one day's funeral. I mean, there was there was prep. You had to people have people there beforehand and afterwards. But uh, yeah, obviously, there's just zero attempt to economize whatsoever um, in putting this together. And the the senator again, uh, Paula Simons, she did say too that for questions about why the hotel rooms were perhaps booked days in advance before they were needed, uh, she said, "Well, we didn't know." the exact day of the funeral. So there was probably some scrambling. And I even think that there is some leeway there and people will understand that, yes, this was very important. She was the Queen of Canada and uh, it was important that uh, Canadians, uh, the Prime Minister and others be there. But like you say, uh, the the other costs and the fact that we're talking about this $6,000 a night hotel room and we still don't know exactly who stayed there. I know Brian Lilly has written about this and, and suggests that it had to be the Prime Minister, but it doesn't seem like there's a lot of transparency i uh, don't know no. i mean he that, that was asked uh, carefully ever conservative leader um brought it up in the house of commons and said who stayed in a six thousand dollar room um this like butler equipped um uh, room and six thousand dollars a night that's one of the more expensive rooms uh in london so again we talk about high hotel costs i mean if you're looking at like two thousand dollars you're already staying uh at claridge's um, which is basically where visiting royalty stays. You've, you've got a room there. So $6,000 is a hell of a lot of money uh, for a room. And it's interesting, you mentioned she's the Queen of Canada. Um, and yeah, we had to have a big presence there. We're the biggest, uh, biggest country with her as head of state, aside from the UK. So obviously you have to send some Canadians. She's our queen. But that also means because Canada has such close links to the UK, we have a lot of stuff in, the, uh, in London. Uh, Canada House, which is the High Commission of Canada to the United Kingdom, is quite a large complex right next to Trafalgar Square, which means it's also close to Westminster Abbey. So it's notice, noticeable, notable that uh, Joe Biden, the U.S. president, he didn't pay anything for hotels because he just stayed at the residence of the U.S. ambassador. It happens to be this large townhouse uh, called Winfield House. Um, so, yeah, we've got a huge complex. We have a high commissioner who has a residence there. Um, so it is weird that we control all this real estate right in the London core. And, you know, there's not at least a couple cots uh, that could be rolled out in an emergency. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you would you would think. Um, I know Brian Lilly again wrote about the fact. So while nobody was saying definitively who stayed in the $6,000 a night room, he did manage to get somebody who confirmed it was not the Governor General. Governor General Mary Simon didn't stay in that room. Yeah, because, well, she had her own spending scan. Right. $100,000. So, yeah, she's, she's real quick on these spending scans. Like, it absolutely wasn't me. You know, I slept in a utility room. Uh, with somebody else. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's, it's either the prime minister, which doesn't look good, or it's even something weirder, like, oh, we couldn't get Sandra O to come unless she had a butler, or I don't know. <laughs> which uh, came with that uh, the river suite uh, indeed um that was uh, one of the questions as well too and, and nothing against sandra oh she does great work but i, I know and i've seen others asking as well as to why specifically she was on the part of the delegation 
Yeah, it was a little confusing um, because, well, Brits watching, anybody watching the funeral, uh, they know her. I forget the name of the series, but there's a BBC series starring Sandra Oh. So she's pretty well known in the UK right now, probably the best she's ever been known at her career. So people watching it were like, why is Sandra Oh there? And yeah, there was these, all, all these articles explaining like, well, Sandra Oh, uh, she got the Order of Canada. It's this very prestigious award. And what they didn't know is like everybody has the Order of Canada. Thousands and thousands of people have the same level of Order of Canada that Sandra Oh has. Um, so, yeah, it makes sense. You're going to bring former governors general, former prime ministers. Uh, but, yeah, there were some members of the delegation, uh, like musician Gregory Charles, uh, Sandra Oh, Mark Tewksbury. Uh, former Olympian. Um, these aren't particularly pro-monarchy type people. It's it's kind of strange. Um, they don't really have many links to the Queen. She's not entirely critical um, to the delegation to mourn the passing of our sovereign. So, uh, yeah, I, I think it's fair to say it's a little weird. Yeah, d- definitely that I list. Sandra Oh was confused. All her Instagrams were <laughs> like, well, Canada wanted me to like mourn the Queen, so I, I had to come. Yeah, which, uh, yeah, a, a bit strange, certainly uh, some questions there. Uh, I know one of the, the responses has been as well uh, from people saying, look, it's no big deal. We had to send this big delegation. Yes, uh, the hotel rooms were expensive. It's uh, an expensive city and given what was happening. But I would imagine we could also flip that and say, well, if it isn't such a big deal, then why not just say who was staying in that room? Exactly. One thing I heard from uh, actually civil servants, uh, if you're a civil servant for the government of Canada, you're under strict orders if you're traveling to be as economical as possible. So why did you stay at this hotel? Why did you just stay at the Days Inn? Why did you drink this coffee? Why didn't you just, you know, suck off a used tea bag that you found in, in the garbage can? Uh, so I've heard from a couple of civil servants saying, uh, yeah, we have to like sleep out of our cars if we're traveling on some, you know, trade trip uh, to London. But this apparently doesn't not only doesn't apply at the top levels, but they're doing the exact opposite, seeming to, you know, pay money is absolutely no object. I, I struggle to think that anybody in this process said, how much is this room a night? And are there other rooms I could do instead? Right. And again, no one is suggesting that the prime minister or the governor general or anybody really in that delegation stay at a Motel 6 or a Super 8. Nothing against those hotel yeah, yeah. chains. And that's, that's some of the pushback. It's like, yeah. oh, you're saying they should like sleep on the street and, you know, some cot and, uh, you know, the sewer. Like, no, 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 no. Please understand. There are options either than $6,000. Uh, a night, you know, maybe those critics don't know that, and you know, which, you know, I, I would suggest there are a wide variety of accommodations uh, in London that don't cost, you know, the equivalent of six months' rent in the country that you actually represent. All right. Well, it is uh, an interesting read, and uh, like we said too, uh, Brian Lilly has been following this very, very closely. Tristan Hopper, thanks so much for your time today. Appreciate it. Thank you.